A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. Now, you might think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. Well, I think you'd be right to say that. But then again, so is everything else. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in and around the world of politics. Today, we'll be joined by political consultant and founder of the Good Faith Partnership, Russ Rook. From community organising to advising party leaders, Russ has been able to influence politics in a number of ways. He'll explain more about all that later on. But first, not only do we have our third prime minister in two months, we have our fifth education secretary this year. Last Monday, the new ministers for the education department faced their first oral question time with MPs in the Commons. By the end of the week, just one of the five was still in place. So I'd like to talk about the hidden issue education. Headline-grabbing instability of our current government hides a real and growing crisis in our schools in particular. This week I met with a group of head teachers in my constituency. All of them were approaching despair over their school's financial plight and the horrific decisions they now need to make, including every single one of them having to lose staff. By 2025, spending per pupil will still be lower than it was in 2010. And a recent survey by the National Association of Head Teachers found that 90% of state schools in England will run out of money by the end of next school year. The government agreed welcome pay rises for teachers this year, but then didn't give the schools the money they needed to fund this. Neither were schools given additional funds to cover the quadrupling of energy bills. Schools are seeing a rise in children with special needs, but no rise in the money they need to support them. Add this to the lost income endured during COVID, you'll see then why so many of my local heads are anxious like they never have been before. Teachers see firsthand an increase in social, emotional and mental health needs among children who've had their lives hugely disrupted over the last three years. School closures and subsequent disruption led to limited socialisation and greatly decreased resilience for learning and even for coping in a school environment. Poorer children are falling furthest behind. Absence rates since COVID, absence rates since COVID closures mean that there are thousands of lost children no longer attending school regularly. Teachers and support staff are drained by the COVID fallout, increasing behavioural challenges and the prospect of cutting essential staff to balance the books. A National Education Union survey of its members found that an astonishing 44% of state school teachers in England plan to quit the profession in the next five years. The teaching profession is collectively exhausted. Yet an opinion piece by James Forsyth in this week's Sunday Times suggested that education is simply not a focus for the government or even for the main opposition, partly because only 8% of the general public think that education is a priority issue, and perhaps because there are simply more votes in promising money to older people. But how can Britain produce an educated workforce for the next generation if we are not investing in our schools now? The main concern of the head teachers I spoke to was for the long-term futures of their children. They know it is the children who will suffer from these cuts the most. Children are often invisible in politics. They don't vote 
or often have a voice in the issues that concern us as a nation, yet they are some of the most vulnerable in society. We know Jesus has a heart for our young people. Let the little children come to me, he said to the disciples, trying to turn them away. Psalm 127 verse 3 says in the Message Bible, don't you see that children are God's best gift? Parents, teachers and government all have a huge responsibility to teach our children to become responsible citizens, to build them up as people of good character, to enable them to thrive. Schools are often safe places for children who may not have a secure home life. They are taught values that underpin our society. This is such important work. And as a nation, we need to treasure it so much more than we do. How can Christians respond then? Well, firstly, let's pray for everyone working in our schools as teachers, senior leaders, support staff, school governors and others as they battle low morale, high need and impossible financial decisions. If you have school aged children, think about offering words of encouragement to their teachers and fundraising for your school. Parent associations are increasingly paying for essential items such as books. There are many Christians serving in education, so let's pray for them to be salt and light in these communities, offering support to their colleagues and a glimpse of the hope and security that only Jesus can bring. If you are concerned by issues facing schools in your area, then write to your local MP and please pray for wise decisions by the Chancellor and his team making difficult choices for the financial statement later this month. Pray that they will recognise the value of our schools, the worth of their staff, and the importance of properly supporting the education and future of the next generation. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. So to our guest this week, political consultant and founder of the Good Faith Partnership, Russell Rook. Russ, good morning. How are you? I'm really well. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you very much indeed. We're going to start off, as we always do, and possibly the most interesting question to many of our listeners, is to ask you a little bit about your faith. Uh, how did you come to it? How did you come to be a believing Christian? Well, I mean, I, I grew up in the Salvation Army. I, I often call myself a fetal Salvationist, Tim, because <laughs> I was going along for at least nine months before I had any, you know, I was actually kind of in the world fully. And then I was sort of dragged along from then on. Um, and a fairly typical Salvation Army background of kind of being at church like four or five times on Sunday and sort of seven or eight times in the week. And so so just engaging in church was kind of a regular part of my life. So I'm one of those Christians who can't really identify uh, a time when I wasn't part of the uh, of, of the church family um, or where I necessarily became a Christian. I can point to various different things along the way, moments along the way, I guess, that were life changing. Yeah. The biggest of which was that when I was 17, my dream, Tim, was to become a musician. Mm. And I managed to flunk all of my auditions to music college. Um, I eventually did retire due to letters from music lovers everywhere. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, I um, I flunked all my, my auditions to music college and I'd always had a hunt actually from about 15 that maybe God was calling me to something different and I thought if God's calling you that's going to end up looking a bit like a vicar or something and I definitely don't want to do that so I, I hatched a plan and I did a deal with the divine and I said God if I give you a year out and go and work for the Salvation Army's youth evangelism team will you let me off the kind of calling beyond that and then can I go and do all the things I want to do thereafter and um, sure enough did the year out and discovered within about three weeks that God hadn't quite shaken on this deal he hadn't quite signed up for it and maybe he had other things uh, in plan for me and so you i mean you are currently ordained in in the anglican church aren't you how, how did that come about well, yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? My, my wife, uh, just on the side, my wife, who is a brilliant musician, came to this country 
when she was 17, uh, having made a deal with her mum that she wouldn't stay and she wouldn't marry an Englishman. And I always say to my mother-in-law, you've got to be careful about saying those things out loud because God has a kind of, uh, has a strange sense of humour. And so there's me running away from anything that looks like being a vicar when I was 17. And now technically I'm a vicar. So yes, I'm an ordained Anglican clergyman, but I'm a slightly different uh, type. I'm what they call a minister in secular employment. Uh, so while I am uh, part of a church and licensed as part of church, in fact, I'm in church this morning uh St Dionys in Parsons Green uh most of my ministry happens where you work in the yes. uh, Westminster Village Parish uh where I live out my calling and my ordination uh amongst the the, the um yeah amongst the world of politics and I've seen it firsthand uh Russ you were really important to me when we were setting up Faith in Public and we've seen you involved in a whole range of other different important projects uh, but Take us a little bit back as to how you ended up in Parliament in the first place. You found yourself working in the House of Lords and then for the leader of the opposition. Yeah, so I I, um, I I still work. I still volunteer one day a week for a, a lady called Baroness or Reverend Baroness Sherlock, who we will call Maeve from now on, because that's really? how she likes to be addressed, not as the Reverend Baroness. Um, <laughs> and Maeve was the chair of a charity that I worked for when she entered the House of Lords. And um, very long story short, I mean, um, as you know, politics can be kind of a lonely, a lonely place. And I said, well, look, you know, if you're going uh, back into politics, she had worked previously for, for Gordon. Brown when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer you know I'd be really happy to you know come in a day a week and um, you know be there and, and work for you and support you in any way that I can and help you with uh, anything that needs helping with and and also just be your 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 friend your prayer partner so um so yeah so I started that that was just after 2010 um, and I've been sort of in and around Parliament ever since mm -hmm. and then in the run-up to the election in 2015 uh, the then Labour leader, Ed Miliband, um, was interested in just how the Labour Party could engage Christians and other faith communities and civil society more broadly. Um, mm. And, and my, my boss, Maeve, got invited to a meeting by the chief of staff, a guy called Tim Livesey, um, to say, you know, what, what can we do? And I got this phone call saying, Russ, you're going to have to come with me to this meeting because that's the kind of thing I would do to help Maeve. And anyway, long story short, out of that meeting, within a matter of hours, really, uh, Maeve had sort of seconded me to work with Ed Miliband's team uh, in the run-up to the 2015 election, sort of engaging faith communities. And so, yeah, that was a bit, it was a bit of a shock to me, but it, it was, mm. it was for even, I mean, as you know, elections are mad and crazy mm. and incredibly stressful and amazingly exciting. And when you lose, pretty horrific. But um, mm. but there's there's a whole but it's kind of whole lifetime of experience wrapped up in that kind of three to six months, you know. We might come back to that in a, in a little while, but I mean, first, the work you were doing with Ed Miliband, which, you know, in a parallel universe, you absolutely would have been able to take into uh, number 10. Um, there you were with Ed Miliband uh, stepping down as leader of the opposition, uh, Labour not having been successful, by the way, the Liberal Democrats being even less successful. Uh, and, uh, and But you then take what you were going to bring into number 10, had Ed Miliband become prime minister, and you set up what we will now refer to as the Good Faith Partnership. Tell us how that happened. Well, I guess it was myself and Tim Livesey, who was Ed's chief of staff. Um, Tim's very committed uh, Christian also. And uh, we sort of sat down after the election and had to think about, well, what are we going to do next? Because we genuinely thought uh, we could, we would win in, in some way, shape or form. So you have a plan for what happens next if, if, if you win, but you don't necessarily have a plan for what happens next if you, if you lose. And so 
we sort of sat down and said, look, what, what, what are we going to do next? And we've been very excited about the potential of bringing different people from different sectors, whether it be from business or politics, government, faith, civil society, charities together to look at some of the really big challenges facing society. You know, the kind of challenges that, you know, just have been here for 10 or 20 or 30 or maybe even more years and don't seem to get shifted by the same old, same old strategies. Mm. And so we, we had a vision of what we could do in government around bringing people of different sectors together to, to try and create different solutions and, and, and different uh, possibilities for old problems. And, um, and we thought, I guess we've got nothing else to lose. So we might as well, you know, try and do that anyway. We're not going to be doing it in number 10. We can do it in our, you know, back bedroom. Um, and we can try and set up something and Tim came up with this great title, The Good Faith Partnership, largely because, well, for two reasons. One, because when you, in politics, as you know, when you say faith, the first thing that people don't usually think is good. The word association between good and faith is unusual. And so we wanted to say, actually, when it comes to politics, faith is a really good thing and can make a huge difference to how how we run our world and already does make a huge difference to how we run our world. But then also because when you're bringing people together from different sectors, you know, essentially what, what you, the only real capital you have is, is trust and relationship. And mm-hmm. you can only really get something done if people really want to build trusting relationships and they are all reliant on good faith. And so actually anything that we do, whether it's with faith or with business or government um, or charity, actually any kind of partnership that's trying to crack a big problem and find an exciting solution relies on some level of relationship and good faith between the partners working together. So we created good faith and then we kind of waited to see what would happen really. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. We're speaking with Russ Rocky, the political consultant and founder of the Good Faith Partnership. Uh, Russ, you set up Good Faith and uh, you were hit almost immediately, well, we all were, by the, the tragedy of the refugee crisis emerging largely as a result of the Syrian war and the conflict within that country. How did Good Faith Partnership uh, step up to the plate when that issue presented itself? I mean, I, I don't think we, we it wasn't as though we had any solutions to, to the biggest refugee crisis since World War II. Um, but I think I'm going back to that theme of good faith. I think what we found we could do was bring people together to talk. And I remember particularly like many of us going on a much needed holiday after the election in the summer of 2015. Um, those horrific pictures, you know, many of us, you know, on beaches around the Mediterranean, opening our newspapers, seeing that horrific picture of Ian Curdy washed up on the beach, thinking that beach is not too far away from where I'm sort of lying on my lilo and drinking my Diet Coke, you know, and that brought home that this was, you know, on our doorstep. And I think many people came back and back to, to that sort of back to school, back to work feeling in September, feeling we've got to do something about this. We've all got to step up. It's not just about a little agency called Good Faith. Mm. And what we found was people wanted to talk about, well, what, what can we do? And that was churches and faith groups, but it was also media and business and government. I mean, everybody came to these meetings that we would host. And often it was the churches and the faith groups that stuck around longest and kept coming to the meetings. And, and they wanted to say that there's, there's got to be something we could do. And then we, we sort of uh, helped with a whole bunch of organisations in the Home Office to co-create what they call the Community Sponsorship Scheme for Refugees. And uh, so we, we were really moved by the fact that in, in 2014 and for the 10 years previously, uh, the United Kingdom only, only um, uh, resettled 750 refugees. 
to put that in in context in 2015 the Mennonite church in Canada a relatively small denomination resettled 1800 refugees more than double the whole of the UK and so we were in a country that wasn't welcoming many refugees and suddenly David Cameron made the the brave decision that we were going to take 20 which became 23,000 refugees from around the Syrian crisis and lots of organizations said well we want to be part of a program that allows communities to welcome these refugees in and churches really took the lead in in being the first sponsors in fact the Archbishop of Canterbury was the very first community sponsor bringing a family in to live in Lambeth Palace in London and and I think what churches and faith communities and other civil society groups have done has really changed changed our country in the most amazing world if you think Tim in 2014 we took you know 750 refugees and last year we took 150,000 Ukrainians I think what churches did then in welcoming refugees into their community changed the tone of the debate in this country and, and has enabled us not only to be generous to those fleeing Syria and then mm. Afghanistan and Hong Kong and now Ukraine. And that, that was really about churches and faith groups stepping up and saying, no, we want to be a welcoming country for people fleeing the most difficult time. So this is, in, and obviously, you know, the, one of the big stories uh, today is the situation with regard to refugees landing on beaches in the south of England and there's lots of rhetoric in both directions but what you're giving me an example there is of, of Christians making physical sacrifices and setting an example by welcoming people within their communities how, how do you think that can have a part to play in perhaps changing the way that politicians talk about migration in general but in particular the plight of refugees well, I think I think the issue is um, in terms of changing that tone of that debate, which particularly, I mean, even yesterday, there were some really worrying phrases used, weren't there, in, mm. in the chamber, particularly the idea that uh, um, that we are being invaded invasion by, yeah. by a group of people, 76% of which at the moment uh, are, are being proven to have the right to be here as refugees because they're fleeing war and persecution, uh, trafficking, all kinds of horrific situations. I think what, what churches and communities can do is prove that we have capacity in this country. And by that, I don't mean just a house that you could use and jobs for people, but the kind of the social capacity and the capacity to welcome and integrate people into our country. What we saw in community sponsorship was lots of communities that hadn't welcomed refugees because they were small or rural or coastal or villages, and they would bring in a few families. And that was quite hard at first. And it, in, in, it had all kinds of kind of fear attached to it. But actually, when communities were allowed to be part of welcoming, it changed their attitude. I remember one lovely story of, uh, of someone who was a community sponsor in, in a village in Wales, and she was knocking on doors to see how they were feeling about the fact their family had arrived six months ago into the village and was everything going okay. And she knocked on one door and she, she was convinced that this person was, well, this person was against the plan at the beginning. So she thought she was going to get a bit of a frosty reception. And the person famously looked at her and said, oh, no, 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 no. We like our refugees. And there's that element that when, when refugees are just a, a headline in a tabloid yeah. a story in a news story, uh, or when they're being described as potential invaders, they can be frightening. But the reality is these are human 
human beings. These are brothers and sisters. These are people also made in the image of God. And when we meet them and get to see all that we have in common and we find out all the things that we can do to, to, to not only bless them, but to have them enhance and bless our lives. I was part of a church that welcomed a family and everyone in our church would say, they changed us more than we changed them. <laughs> yeah. It was a, it was an amazing experience. So I think what the church can do is give a kind of local expression to this. And I think the more we do that, we will change the national narrative and the tone of our discussion. The more that local communities prove that we have the capacity in every way to welcome vulnerable people. Wonderful, Russ. Well, before we finish, I feel like I want to take us back a little bit to your time in the Leader of the Opposition's office, not least because you've been doing a little bit of work for the Office of the Leader of the Opposition, again, Keir Starmer in his current position. From my, uh, in my experience, this, this feels like a moment where a change of government looks more likely than not at the moment. And so the Leader of the Opposition really is a potential Prime Minister in waiting. From a Christian point of view, uh, what advice would you give to a leader of the opposition but also just for christians listening to this program we often pray for our leaders i guess we should be praying i'm sure we should be praying for our potential leaders too how how should we be praying for for sakir well i think the advice is that's a tricky one because i'm not i'm not sure who i am to give advice to Keir. We, <laughs> we did an event with Keir a few weeks ago at the labor party conference which was absolutely packed with people from different faith communities mm. and um Keir did a great job and uh, we had Marvin Reese. Um, I don't know if you have Marvin on your show, you should have Marvin on the show. Somewhere. Yes, you should. Um, uh, Marvin is the mayor of Bristol and he told the story of how his faith had driven him towards politics, but also how uh, communities and churches have been so, so powerful in helping him to bring transformation to the city of Bristol. Um, and Keir spoke very powerfully also about the role of faith communities. We know that actually that our churches and our faith communities carry a huge amount of weight in our local in our local societies whether that's about running of food banks whether it's the warm welcome campaign we're involved in this huge warm welcome.uk campaign at the moment over 2000 places that are kind of opening up warm spaces for people during this kind of cost of living crisis in what could be a long cold dark winter mm. and, and and vast majority of those are churches but churches are bringing other faith communities libraries and other other organizations into play and so what Keir was clear what Keir was keen to communicate was that actually we recognize recognize that faith plays an absolutely vital role in our in our communities and I think the first thing I would say as someone who's helping uh, the Labour Party with their faith in Labour strategy and their faith champion strategy is uh, to the leader of the opposition Sakia please continue to recognize that there is not only so much good work going on in local churches around the country, but more so if, if you build that relationship, that sense of partnership, if you're willing to invest and support the church in what it does to bring good news to local communities, we, we can see an exponential change in so many of the issues that cause prime ministers and political leaders so much stress and anxiety. And so I think the thing, the thing that I am trying to say and will continue to say is please recognise that the church can be an ally and a partner and a friend for you as you try to take our country forward in terms of prayer I, I think to be honest Tim I would I would pray for um 
I would pray for Keir and his family. I mean, you know this better than anyone on this call, but I saw a bit of this working with Ed, the pressure that leading a political party puts on your personal life, your family life, uh, your ability to spend time with your wife, your children, you, you know, just the fact that it's 24 seven and the news cycle and things kind of blow up at a moment's notice and everything has to change. I, I think that's one of the things that, uh, I, I'm not sure I could do that. You have done it and Keir is doing it and Ed managed it. I'm not sure I, I have the capacity to manage that kind of stress and anxiety. And so I think what I would ask people to pray for is that he has peace, that his family is strong, that he is able to not only be a good Labour leader, but to be a good husband and a good dad. And uh, that actually he, he can flourish and thrive uh, in the role that he has so that he can make the contribution that our country needs him to make. Russ, really grateful. I think we have run out of time. You have not run out of energy, which is exciting. And there's clearly loads more for you to do. And your passion is, is infectious. And we're really grateful to you for everything that you do. And especially for being with us today on the show. Russ, we'll see you again, I hope. Thank you, Tim. Bless you. Each week, we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. It may be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. Well, I'd love to hear from you and attempt to give an answer. So please drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. Well, this week, Stephen has been in touch and he says the following. I sometimes write to my MP or the Prime Minister about things I am concerned about. A few weeks ago, there was an arrest of six Christian women in India on probably bogus charges. I wanted to write to someone about it, but I didn't know who to write to because I do not know who has responsibility that would include incidents in other countries. I will be interested to know who you think will be the best person in our government for such issues and would write into the ambassador of that country in the UK be worth doing. Well, Stephen, first of all, thank you ever so much for your question and for your heart for those people who are persecuted overseas. It's important for us to remember, as Christians, particularly in the Western world, that, yes, we face challenges and opposition, but it's not persecution. And we see people around the world, including those uh, women you mentioned in India, who face the most serious forms of persecution. And we should be praying for them and loving them uh, all of the time. Um, so how do we make a difference? Well, first of all, writing to the prime minister is, is no bad thing to do. And indeed, you know, writing, as you suggest, to that country's ambassador in the UK, that's already um, you know, something that you could be doing and, and would be worthwhile because that information will then feed back to the host country. But within our own government setup, as things stand, obviously we're in the midst potentially of yet another reshuffle, but our, our friend Fiona Bruce, who's a Conservative MP from uh, Congleton, she is the Prime Minister's Special Envoy for Freedom of Religion and Belief. And uh, so she will be absolutely the right person to write to on these issues. You'll find somebody there who is uh, very much on your side and has a heart very much herself for uh, the persecuted church overseas. On top of that, James Cleverly, who's the Foreign Secretary, is a man who I'm, I'm, I know is open-minded about such things. And his role as, if you like, the United Kingdom's senior diplomat uh, is an important one. But I do think writing to your MP or even going to see them is also a really good thing to do. I often encourage us on this programme to think about how we can engage with our local MPs, especially if they're not Christians, better than we currently do. And here will be a cause where you could perhaps make common cause with your MP and get them to perhaps then afterwards look into other issues as well. But above all else, 
Um, keep praying, keep caring, keep working with outfits like Open Doors, who uh, work very much to protect and, and promote the interests of the persecuted church internationally, because together we undoubtedly can make a difference. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's join together in prayer as we finish our time together for this week. Loving Heavenly Father, we lift up to you our leaders, as we are commanded to do, to pray for them. So we pray for Rishi Sunak as he begins his time as the United Kingdom's Prime Minister. We pray you give him uh, wisdom, uh, that he would govern with competence and with compassion, and that he would also uh, support the freedoms that we enjoy as Christians in this country. We pray for Keir Starmer also. We pray for him to have wisdom, uh, that he would offer an alternative platform and give the country the choice it perhaps needs at a future election. We lift up Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak and need all those who lead political parties like Nicola Sturgeon, Ed Davey and others. And we just ask that you'd be with them and in particular with them in their role uh, as people who are heads of their families, um, as, as husbands and wives, as, um, as fathers, as parents, as those who have a responsibility at home. Be, play you, I pray that you would bless their home life um, and ensure that you protect their families. And Lord, we want to pray also for our schools. The uh, crisis affecting them is undeniable. Uh, and we want to lift up to you all those who teach and all those who lead our schools and all those who work in our schools. We thank you for them. We pray that you provide for them. We pray that you give them the resources, both physical and emotional and spiritual, to be able to honour you. We pray especially for those who are Christians who work in education, that they would be wise and they would be salt and light to the children, to parents and to fellow staff. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, look, thank you so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes, which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash A Mucky Business. 